You're listening to the Contemplative Light Podcast with your host, Clint Sabon. Hey, so this is Clint. We're going to take a little bit of a turn towards the east tonight and talk about Shankara, philosopher of Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta is one of six philosophical schools that are orthodox philosophies in Hinduism, and Advaita Vedanta is one of non-duality and is very popular with a lot of spiritual seekers and people drawn to mysticism so much that there's actually a thing called neo Advaita now that includes a whole lot of popular spiritual teachers, many of them Western, in fact. But this all goes back to ancient India, really, and it's a good place to just go over some of the key texts coming out of Hinduism that are influential in Advaita Vedanta that are good to know in general. One of the things that Vedanta and Shankara especially are in opposition to, in a sense, or are challenging, is the importance placed upon the Vedas in Hinduism. And the Vedas are a kind of liturgy, really. I mean, there's a lot of hymns and guidance on rituals and practices to the gods to get some blessing from the outside, and I kind of think of it as liturgy or rites. And then later, uh, we we have the Upanishads, and so we're still kind of uh, BCE here with the Vedas and the Upanishads. And it is interesting to mention, too, that people are digging up statues of Shiva and other Hindu gods going back very, very far, 3000 BCE and further probably now as new archaeological evidence is coming out all the time. I certainly don't stay on top of it all. But the earliest were the Vedas and then the Upanishads. And the Upanishads are a lot of teaching and philosophy, a lot of non-dual teachings that are emphasized in Vedanta. And then we also have the Brahma Sutras, which are a bunch of aphoristic sayings or kind of wisdom sayings, some of them very obscure, some of them dealing with metaphysics. And both the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutras were influential for Shankara. Also influential in Shankara's work was the Bhagavad Gita, which many Westerners are familiar with, but is actually just one small part of the Ramayana, which is a long epic poem, uh, kind of a mythic tale. And the Bhagavad Gita is just kind of, I I guess, a popular excerpt of that uh, with Krishna talking to Arjuna and um, Krishna being an avatar or incarnation of, of the god Vishnu, the preserver. So, to go to Shankara, uh, it you know it's important to mention those earlier texts because obviously Advaita Vedanta didn't begin necessarily with him, although he was kind of the compiler and kind of commentated on everything that had come up to that point to kind of crystallize this this one particular philosophical school. But much of much of the same 
kind of thinking and perspective can be found in the Upanishads and the in the Brahma Sutras, especially, I think. So Shankara was born 788 to 820, and that's common era. So, you know, we're probably kind of in, in very early medieval times in in Western Europe at that same time. And we're definitely after Buddha and Lao Tzu, and we're definitely after Jesus too. But uh, like those aforementioned three, Shankara has a biography filled with lots of differing accounts and legends and uh, historical discrepancies, or, or at least there's no scholarly certitude about some details of his life. But the best approximation is to go ahead and play somewhere around 788 to 820. He did live to be only 32 years old, so quick run but definitely an influential run and probably probably died uh, you know more than at peace with with his time coming so what do we know he was born in a small village in southwest india to a childless couple who had petitioned shiva for a son and of course many biographers write about Shankara as if he was the incarnation of Shiva. He was said to have mastered the Vedas at a very young age. And at eight years old, early, 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 eight years old, he wanted to be a sannyasi, a wandering, begging monk, which was actually a, a role in, in southwest India at that time. I mean, it wasn't like you know, they were they were social outcasts. I mean, they were respected. Um, but his mom didn't really like that idea. And so, legend has it, he convinced his mom when he was in the river and an alligator attacked him and grabbed hold of him. And I guess the alligator was going to kill him, but he could have wrestled himself free. But he basically called out to his mom on the banks saying, Mom, I want to be a sannyasi. Better let me be a sannyasi or I'm going into this alligator's mouth. So his mom said, okay, I'd rather have you alive in a sannyasi than dead. And that was the beginning. I'm reminded, too, when I hear stories like that of of Herman Hesse's uh, Siddhartha, uh, you know, when, when Siddhartha wants to, wants to do that and kind of stands there all night to ask his father. And it's actually important to mention, too, at, at Contemplative Light, we have a class on the Christian mystics right now, and you can just, you can actually get a free mini course on the Christian mystics. I'll put it below, below this podcast. We, we have a, just a free mini course, but we have a longer class, too, on 20 different Christian mystics, and a lot of them that were called to a contemplative life or a monastic life had some crazy battles with their parents, and they won, obviously. So Shankara begins his life as a sannyasi. He looks for a guru. He finds a guru, Govinda, who I think is actually also a character in Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. You know, you start looking at like Hinduism and, and Buddhism, and if you've read Siddhartha first, then, then, then you start seeing all the characters. So when they say that Herman Hesse wrote Siddhartha as a retelling of the Buddha's life, well, I mean, not exactly. It's kind of all jumbled up in there in an interesting way. But anyways, 
So Shankara meets Govinda and Govinda tells him to go to Varanasi or Benares. I usually hear people say Benares, a city in northern India. And lots of temples there. Lots of pilgrims come there all the time. And where the Ganges River runs through Benares there, said to be sacred waters. You know, you die in those waters, you go straight to Nirvana. It's just a one-way ticket. So, very popular city there. And perhaps it's popular because of Shankara. Anyway, Shankara goes there and he starts kind of putting his philosophy together and he writes a commentary on the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutras and starts really kind of crystallizing uh, the Advaita Vedanta teachings. And that's kind of what survives to today very well. A lot of people like his writings. And I'll read one towards the end of this. But after he puts those together, he decides to go on a tour of India, the entire Indian subcontinent. And it seems like he's kind of got two things going on with this tour. One is he wants to debate his philosophy with other schools and kind of win a sense of respect or even prominence or dominance for his philosophy is very common in the Western world, too. You know, this kind of walking around and meeting other thinkers and then having these public philosophical debates. Of course, we imagine it as like so romantic looking back in the past. It was probably like a bunch of people in like a really uncomfortable building with like ants and mosquitoes everywhere. <laughs> and the other agenda he had was to set up monasteries for Advaita Vedanta, for not just teaching the philosophy, but where spiritual practices could be done to realize, to realize the true nature of reality. So what was his philosophy? His philosophy was that reality is non-dual. Everything's one and indivisible, unchanging and eternal and making any sort of distinction or separateness or dualism is really just an ignorant misunderstanding. And this ignorance is the foundation on which suffering arises. And in his debates, his philosophical debates with other schools, some of which were very attached to the Vedas and making the Vedas central, you know, the role of the priests, the role of the rituals, the role of the practices. And of course, all that's still going on. You know, it's not like Shankara put an end to it and people just stopped doing it. Now they're still doing it. There's, there's room for, for differing schools in Hinduism. It's not like Christianity where we're like, well, you're not really a Christian. You don't think like we do. They don't really tend to do that as much. They kind of allow some space. Some may say too much space because, you know, I've certainly met scholars of Hinduism where, you know, they just kind of admit it's seemingly impossible to synthesize this whole religion. So the idea of Shankara's philosophy is, is self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is really the removal of the ignorance the removal of the misunderstanding. And what comes as a removal of the misunderstanding is realizing that Brahma is all. Brahman is all. So in some Hindu schools, it will be taught Brahman is God, the absolute. And the Atman is more like a kind of individual soul. And some will say that at death, the Atman, you know, merges with the Brahman. 
and escapes the cycle of samsara. And some will say that the Atman goes on, reincarnates, until it sheds all of its karma. And Shankara would say, well, the Atman is not even really a thing. It's really just all Brahman. Because in a sense, if you think about it, an individual soul is really just kind of a fancy way of justifying like a spiritual ego or a deeper ego. And, you know, in looking at some of the literature on this, it does seem like ego is used a lot. And also just with spiritual teachers in general, they seem to use the word ego a lot. Of course, the way Freud used it is different than the way spiritual teachings use it. So I think that kind of really kind of creates some confusion with folks. And I think there's confusion around it in general. But the idea of what what we're calling the ego in the context of Shankara is the idea that there's some independent individual self. You know, there's some you inside the body. There's some independent you kind of choosing things or acting as if you're kind of you know, not really completely connected to everything else, as if you're really the one deciding stuff and doing stuff. This is where the idea of non-doership comes from. So really, it's just kind of like the universe or Brahman, everything that is, it's really just acting through you, and it's all just really happening. And this notion that there's some, like, individual controller with, like, you know, in the cockpit of your mind, pulling all the strings, that's that's the illusion. And so the practice of obliterating this illusion, sometimes called jnana yoga, one of the phrases that's mentioned in regards to Shankara is, only Brahman is real, the world is an illusion, the world is Brahman. So you kind of have only Brahman is real as if it's like an external God. Then you have the world as the illusion as if, oh, oh, wait, you mean this material reality isn't quite as um, solid and definitive as we think it is. So maybe it's just all one big extending Brahman. But then you come back and like, wait, Brahman is the world. So it's really, you know, not some dualism where you're, you're going with the spirit side over the material. It's that the spirit and the material are not two, which is one translation of Advaita, not two. And you know, when I first heard of oneness, before I'd had any depth of experience, I mean, I'm just talking about like reading some mystic stuff at a young age. I'd always hear like, and, and they'd be big in doing it in like academic text. Like if you re read like a history text or like a, even some religious studies text, they'll always talk about mystics seeing the one thing as one and things aren't separate. And I always would think they're talking about like, oh, wait, so me and this desk are not separate. Me and this wall are not separate. It's all just kind of one thing. And, it, and, and I would imagine like everything was like stuck together. And, I, and I'd be like, oh, I don't want that. That sounds awful. You know, it's like you, no space for yourself. You're one with everything. You're stuck to everything. So that's how it first hit me. So I share that as a way to, to kind of show that this is meant as something to realize experientially. And sometimes our own experience can be really out of sync with certain ways of describing things. Of course, now I'm fine with, with that use of oneness. <laughs>
because I understand oneness as something realized by going inward and a kind of opening and an awareness of the backdrop of everything that everything exists inside of. But it, it's been something that happened, not something that I read about in a book and was like, wait, let me wrap my mind around that. Oh, whoa, you know, there it is. I mean, it didn't exactly happen like that, which is a big understatement. But I like the phrase, the ground of being, to describe it. Another thing I think of sometimes is the idea of childhood. And for some that had good periods in their childhood, you might remember, you know, and especially looking back on it as you get older, that kind of sense of just kind of wonder or mist or enchantment that just kind of flowed through everything. Of course, at the time, you weren't thinking of it that way. It only looks like that in retrospect. But that's where this is going back to, my friends. Oh, yeah. Remember that feeling? That's what mysticism leads to. That summer feeling is going to haunt you one day in your life. Well, you're going to get it back. You can get it back. But you're not in control of getting it back, according to Shankara. One of the things that's interesting about Advaita Vedanta, I think, is that just looking and hearing about people's spiritual journeys and meeting people or even just seeing people, online or videos of people or spiritual writers that write books. You know, you often hear about people going through so many different phases in their spiritual life. And they'll be like, well, you know, I was in an evangelical phase and then I went to mainline and now I'm kind of contemplative and then I converted to Catholicism and now I'm becoming a Benedictine monk. And that's not even so drastic as as some of the things I'll hear, you know, like, well, I got into magic, then I had a Native American period, then I spent several years at a Zen center, and then I did a lot of studying on the Kabbalah, but those were just all phases before I found Advaita Vedanta. I'll hear stories like that. What I don't hear is, I went through an Advaita Vedanta phase. I took what I could get, but then I just kind of moved on, started going back to church. (laughs) Like, I don't hear that. Or I went through an Advaita Vedanta phase, then a pagan phase, and then, you know, whatever. You know, it's it's never like a stop on the way. It's it's always seems to be the last stop. That's what's that's what's interesting about it. Like anybody I meet or hear about that's into it, it's the last stop. I like saying that, the last stop. Real dramatic. But a lot of this stuff can certainly get confusing. One of the things that can happen is a kind of dissociation or kind of an identification with consciousness. Like you're, you know, you're the one consciousness. You're the all. And you are. But sometimes that can get disconnected from the body. I mean, obviously you're not experiencing someone else sitting in a chair, someone else driving. You're experiencing you. You know, you experience everything through your body. So that doesn't go away. And what also doesn't go away is repressed emotions, repressed feelings. But what can happen with a lot of teachings like this is a kind of spiritual bypassing, which is basically just kind of using something as a belief. So you're not really experiencing something, you know, it's like a belief bandaid, you know, I'm one with everything. I just went through a really painful breakup. She really broke my heart, but. I'm not going to give in to it because I know we're both one. You know, I don't need to get all sad. We're one, even when we're broken up. 
you know, kind of a lot of stuff like that. But that happens. And if that's happened to you, that's okay. That can be part of the process. But there doesn't seem to be any shortcuts around anything ever. Not that stuff can't be released quickly and not that there aren't spontaneous awakenings. But I mean, it's all got to clear, you know, it's all got to clear experientially in the body. All the suffering has got to clear. And according to Shankara, the way to clear the suffering is you remove the ignorance on which suffering is based. And there's various practices to do this. Yana yoga is one, but there's other yogic techniques, meditations, exercises. So, hope you enjoyed this. And also, be sure to get our free mini course at the bottom. I'll put a link there. And love you all. Talk to you next time. When there's things to do, not because you gotta. When you run for love, not because you oughta. When you trust your friends with no reason, not a The joy I've made shall not be tamed And that summer feeling is gonna haunt you 